0: Hello, I'm Paul McDonald, Senior Executive Director at Robert Half. On behalf of Chris Wright, Managing Director with Protivity, and Robert Half, thank you for joining today's forward thinking session at the center of the storm. Robert Half and Protivity are proud, long standing supporters of FEI, and I've been actually been a member since 1999. Like FEI, Robert Half and Protivity strongly emphasize education and exchanging ideas about best practices to help the greater community succeed. We believe in the mission of the FEI to help finance professionals understand emerging issues, advocate for the role of corporate finance, network and upskill. One of the greatest benefits for listeners of the Forward Thinking series is learning how firms from different areas are navigating the current environment, which can provide new perspectives and hopefully prompt new ideas. We're proud to sponsor this unique opportunity to hear from leaders in the profession and hope you enjoy today's presentation. Thanks, Paul. Hi, I'm Chris Wright, a Managing Director with Protivity. At Protivity and Robert Half, we closely track how finance functions across industries are changing amid the pandemic. And today's session featuring Dennis Dallin, CFO of the Mayo Clinic, promises to further this knowledge for all of us. The healthcare industry, as the title of today's session indicates, is experiencing unique effects from the pandemic. And the lessons learned at the Mayo Clinic can help finance functions in all sectors. I look forward to hearing Dennis describe the challenges he and his team have faced and overcome and what their successes mean for companies both within and outside of healthcare. Today's discussion promises to be another enlightening one. Enjoy.
1: Happen and welcome to the Financial Executive Podcast. Before we get started, um, and for those of you who uh, might be unaware about the work of the Mayo Clinic, the Mayo Clinic is a nonprofit organization committed to clinical practice, education, and research providing expert care to everyone who needs healing. In this capacity, the Mayo Clinic has been instrumental to combating the current public health crisis. The Mayo Clinic treats more than 1 million people annually, employs 65,000 persons, and generates $14 billion in annual revenues. The Mayo Clinic has been recognized by the US News & World Report as the top hospital in the United States. Um, Before we bring Dan Dolan, Chief Financial Officer of the Mayo Clinic on, Michelle, it's time for our first polling question.
2: Has your organization reprioritized projects or canceled investments as a result of COVID nineteen or its associated economic impacts? Please be sure to make your selections and you press submit. And don't forget to submit any questions you have throughout the presentation through the Q and A box. I'm going to give you about ten more questions, the ten more seconds left to respond, and we'll move forward to the results. Here are our results.
1: Fascinating results. Um, Dan, um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are now as Chief Financial Officer at the Mayo Clinic?
3: Um, thanks, Dylan, and a um, um, pleasure being here, um, and uh, thanks to FBI for the, for the opportunity to speak and certainly for the sponsors. Uh, that was an interesting uh, our response to the initial polling question. I, I'd like to, we should speak with the 16% that haven't uh, changed anything as a result of, of COVID-19. Uh, but your question is a little bit about more, more, more about myself. I've been uh, the chief financial officer at Mayo Clinic for about three years. Um, I, I don't think there's a whole lot that's remarkable about, uh, about, uh, uh, my background. I'm, I, I'm, uh, I grew up on a small dairy farm in, in the Midwest and uh, went through accounting uh, curriculum and started in public accounting, switched over to um, an internal audit role in healthcare, in a healthcare company, and spent, um, you know, about 30 plus years with, uh, with a single companies so that grew and morphed and, and combined and grew into a multi-billion dollar enterprise Um, And from there, I was tapped to uh, lead um, uh, Mayo Clinic's finance uh, team about three years ago, and so um, you know, I'd say uh, sometimes it's a combination of luck and hard work, and I'd say there's a lot more luck than, uh, well, I'd say, I'm, not that I don't work hard, but there's a lot of luck in, uh, in uh, my background and where I got here, so uh, that's a little bit about me. I've got, um, I'm married, have three wonderful daughters, four grandkids and counting, and I'm um, um, uh, really uh, blessed to have uh, not been touched personally with COVID or any of the pandemic other than
1: workwise and And, um, you know, again, just very happy to be here. Thanks, Dennis. Um, We're really glad to have you, and we're very grateful that you're willing to share some of your expertise with us. Um, From your perspective, Dennis, can you walk me through how the crisis has impacted both yourself and the Mayo Clinic as an organization? Um, What was it like from the first rumblings um, of an outbreak uh, to how things are now? But thanks for
3: the question, Dylan. it's a, it's, um, it's interesting as we replay, you know, the tape and try to go back to the beginning of the movie. What you know, what was our first inkling of, of you know looming disaster or a looming crisis or pandemic? And I, I recall it actually pretty specifically. It was in uh, early January when uh, my supply chain uh, lead was was uh, giving me notice that there was something going on in China, which is where all most of our supply, certain uh, sort of the commodity end of our supply chain, starts. With, uh, for gowns and gloves and all sorts of things like that, masks. And um, he was telling me that the, the, some of the fa- manufacturing capacity was shutting down, and so we may be seeing some, um, uh, some shortages. And so that was the first inkling that anything was wrong, um, and that was, again, mid, mid-January. Of course, you know, played forward a few weeks, and it was clear that it was not, you know, the, 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 the COVID-19 virus was not going to be contained to China and it was getting out and the, the supply chain disruptions were real. And I also remember it was uh, the 10th of March. I was on a business trip and uh, Mayo Clinic, not, not the first, but we made the decision relatively early to just to, uh, to bring everybody home. So, um, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, an order from, from, uh, from headquarters to, to return home as soon as possible. And that March 10th was the last time I was in an airport, candidly. And so we've all been home since then. Um, you know, as I continue to play this out, um, uh, about a week after that, I I remember getting a, um, a weekend phone call from uh, our CEO, um, with some. Some panic in his voice uh, because we had uh, our clinical leadership had decided that um, for two reasons: one is um, that because of patient safety, and we wanted to be absolutely sure that we could maintain a, a clinically safe environment for our patients, uh, but, but as well as as preparing for what could be what seemed to be at that point again, this is late mid to late March, um, an onslaught of COVID cases uh, as the as the pandemic exploded, um, we decided to essentially. Closed Mail Clinic. So we closed our outpatient practice, essentially shut the doors. And once closed, whether you've been to Mayo Clinic or not, I don't know, but um, huge. This organization produces about a billion two in revenue every month, and sees you know somewhere near twenty thousand patients um, you know in an outpatient setting every every month. So this was, that was a significant uh, challenge in the space of about a week to to, to really just um, put the brakes on hold. And what what was a very busy clinical environment turned into seven Sundays every week. It was always closed. There was nobody here. It was eerie. Um, the elevators were empty. Uh, we went uh, essentially to ground, most of our uh, staff started working from home. There was a handful of us that stayed in the um, offices. Now, um, that eeriness of no patient volumes, I suppose it's not unlike airports or retail or anything else, but it was eerie for us because this place is always busy. You know that precipitated uh, two weeks of what I would just call furious contingency planning because if um, if you go from uh, 1.2 billion in revenue every month to what we thought could be you know very close to zero, um, and you've got you know a matching set of expenses uh, that doesn't uh, without management intervention doesn't stop, um, we had we had to do some con- contingency planning. We had. Significant uh, cash reserves. We were uh, highly liquid. That wasn't the problem. But if at that scale of potential losses, we we really knew that we had to do some significant planning. So two weeks of furious contingency planning um and then about three weeks of selling and getting that approved and uh then following that quick execution i must i just have to give credit to our leadership both clinical administrative uh to our board uh and um our colleagues and and uh, the staff here uh we 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 produced um, a, 1 point, a $1.2, $1.3 billion um, correction plan that essentially furloughed a fairly significant um, number of staff on temporary and, and part-time basis. Uh, we deferred lots of salary plans. We all took a pay cut. Um, we deferred any any uh, and most and every uh, uh, not uh, spending that wasn't absolutely necessary. Uh, and so all of that worked, um, and then about the mid, middle of April, under last week of April, our clinical leadership uh, determined um, ways—it was a whole host of different things they did—decided to coexist with COVID, and we were fortunate enough to be open, reopen the clinic. And um, uh, what, what could have been months of, of um, no, uh, uh, no, no volume or no activity and very little revenue, Uh, turned into about a month and a half or maybe a little bit less. And so May was a recovery month. Um, June. Was uh, we have uh, almost uh, hit hit our uh, revenue and and um, uh, volume targets that were in place before the pandemic, and so uh, there was a consistent um, uh, consistency in demand both before and after the, the pandemic. Also, clearly helped by the release of the non elective or the uh, the ban on elective surgeries uh, in early March, and that that happened across our enterprise. So. So all of that is terrific. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't also note that, um, you know, in our, it was in our darkest days. And I still remember the Friday uh, when the first tranche of some of the CARES Act funding came through. Um, that had never happened before. Uh, at least in my career, where uh, I think it was 151 million just showed up in our bank accounts on a Friday with about two days' notice, and you know we'd heard news of this CARES Act funding. In fact, we'd gotten a call from HHS saying it's probably on the way, but we didn't expect. You know, we had no idea how much, and 151 million just showed up in our our banks on uh, on one Friday in April, and then subsequent Fridays, it's continued to dribble in, um, and. You know, I realize it comes from the treasury. I know there's taxpayers behind that, and and uh, uh, it's all terrific. But that was a terrific and a significant shot in the arm, if you will, during the darkest days of the pandemic, when we when we we weren't actually sure how long this was going to last or how deep it was going to be. Uh, but it gave us courage and uh, supplemented uh, our resolve to see this through. And, uh, and and getting that money was was significant. It, it, it turns out. Uh, that the pandemic at least for us or the, the disrupt business disruption was shorter than we expected and not as deep as we expected. But again the the, the monies were well timed, very well timed and very well placed. So um, if we if we look um, look forward to the end of the year we're we believe we think the current circumstances are going to stay with us. COVID is not going to be solved until we reach herd immunity, either through a vaccine or, or um, through case loads. And case loads is a tough, tough, um, tough way to get there. Uh, but we do expect this. The current model of businesses will, of business will be uh, continued for the near term. That was a long answer to your question, Dylan. I don't know if you wanted that long of an answer, but that was the full story. That was the full full
1: movie. That was the perfect answer. Thank you, Dennis. Really, really interesting insights. I really appreciate the depth um, and the breadth of what you shared. It's really helpful. Um, I really love that term that you shared, coexisting uh, with COVID. A lot of companies right now are you know, returning to work, ramping or trying to ramp up production, trying to recover and really salvage what's left of 2020. Um what advice do you have for companies from your experience on how they can best coexist with COVID?
3: Well, we found, um, you know, despite uh, the sort of lack of interest in a na- nationwide policy on on masking, I I wear a mask to work every day. Anytime I'm not in my office, I'm I'm masked up. We we found just simple simple social distancing um, and masking is quite effective at uh, deferring, at preventing the spread. Um, and so simple, simple measures can protect all of us. And so I would say that, that is one. Um, I, I, th- I think the other is watch, watch the numbers and pay attention to what's, what's really going on. And it's not just uh, infections that we have to watch, it's hospitalizations, it's who's getting sick. I will say we're, you know, we are getting better at treating um, these cases are. Uh, we, we've all, Mayo Clinic has been fortunate. We, we've had a very low mortality rate on our COVID cases, um, and I think I think we're improving. So, uh, so that's and I think everybody is. We, we're you know the ventilator use that was uh, seen early on in New York is not not what we're experiencing. We're able to manage these patients without vents. And as you know, uh, as you probably know, once you get once a once a human being is dependent on a vent, it's 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 hard to get off of that bent. And so if you can prevent that, that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I suspect, like, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's a great example? Peloton's a great example of, you know, this is, and, and we are as well. We've, we've developed uh, some of the leading COVID testing uh, methodologies. and And so this is a time of business opportunity as well as a time of business challenge. And so you've got to balance both of those. I don't. I don't have any silver bullets for um, you know how do you coexist with with COVID, other than just to exercise common sense safety. Um, try to keep your employees and your customers safe by just exercising simple common sense measures. Um, there's not much else we can do. I mean, universal testing, Some there are some organizations, some of our peers are doing that. It's the one thing we do know, and maybe this will be news to some of the listeners, is um, that we, we've got testing capacity. Where we're struggling is supplies to, to to um, utilize all that capacity so we've got the machines we're struggling with getting enough reagents to, to fully do all the testing we need to um, and candidly we're with the with the return to school uh, this fall and uh, college students going back we expect testing and some some colleges are at requiring testing when students arrive so we're looking we're thinking looking ahead to the fall to be a bolus of testing needs
1: and we're worried about that really fascinating insight. Um, First question from the audience, um, and this relates to kind of the early stages um, of when uh, COVID-19 was breaking out. Um, And they were asking, it's interesting that the first sign of COVID possible disruption um, for you was hearing from the supply chain side. Um, Were there any other clinical information available um, within the Mayo Clinic, from the medical side, that this would become an issue. You know, I can't. Um, there's until really
3: um, late. I think it was the first U.S. case in, in early, mid to late February. I think on the West Coast. I think Seattle. I think that was the first time we really started clinically paying paying much attention to it. Um, although. You know, Mayo Clinic's a, a, an organization that's physician-led, physician-driven, and and you know, physicians are scientists. So, a lot of interest in the clinical uh, underpinnings. Um, and we early, early on uh, recognized that uh, the testing capabilities would be necessary, and sort of developing those. But you know, not not uh, if you were at the question, Dylan, is about an early warning, did we have a vast warning of this? We really didn't.
1: That makes sense, thank you. Um, And with where we're at now, Michelle, it's time for our second polling question.
2: Great. Which of the following curves best aligns with your expectations for an economic recovery? Please be sure to make your selections and press submit, and don't forget to submit any questions through the Q&A boxes. We'll have some time to go through. I'm going to give you about 10 more seconds left to respond, and we'll move to the results. Here
1: are our results. Really interesting um, expectations there. Um, the leaders seem to be a U shaped recovery and a W shaped recovery. Um, Really interesting insights there, um, Dennis. Going into the next phase, um, especially with this in mind, that companies are expecting either, you know, a modest economic recovery um, for the short term before another drop, or you know, continued stagnant um, economic growth. Um, you know, capital management is going to continue to be a problem, and it's really emerged in our previous episodes in this series as one of the key concerns for FEI members. Um, can you tell me about some of the capital decisions you've had to contend with, um, and how did you really make these, uh, these decisions between balancing, you know, short-term survival considerations and long-term growth? Yeah, it's a a great question and incredibly
3: relevant and timely given where we're at. The, um, so again, just uh, replaying the movie back to the uh, late days of March and early days of April when we had no idea the depth of the breadth of this thing was, and we were going from, you know, alleged or potentially 1.2 billion in revenue to something close to zero. Um, everything was on the table and we we essentially froze. Everything that could be frozen, there were a couple of exceptions. If you know, we had we had concrete being uh, lifted into position for buildings in Arizona and um, and Florida, we couldn't really stop that, so we, we left kept that going. But virtually everything else, we stopped, and we stopped it right up until the point that um, we could see a light at the end of the tunnel or emerging at the end of the tunnel, and that was late April, early May. Um, ultimately, what the the, the uh, contingency plan we put in place. Um, our our, our target, targeted CapEx spending for uh, 2020 was uh, about a billion and a half dollars. We reduced that to about $600 million. And with most of that being maintenance capital, uh, when an MRI uh, or an a x-ray system or a lab machine goes down, you've got to replace it or you, you're out of business. So we, we have to keep that uh, that capital stock in, uh, fresh and, and operational. So we we took, you know, took our um, uh, almost two-thirds of our CapEx budget um, uh, down uh, out of the year. So And I deferred most of that. That said, um, you know, all these capital is you constrain capital because of cash flow reasons. and our and our strategy there was, again, at the most dire days was just survive. We wanted to be the last. Um, what's that old story? Is he, if you if there are two of you in the woods and a bear is chasing you, you, don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your companion. We wanted. We didn't want to. We wanted to be the last survivor at the very least, if there was only to be one survivor. And so we wanted a cache to cash the last as far as possible. So we, 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 uh, as did most everybody. We, uh, we. Uh, early on, uh, found every every uh, opportunity to gain liquidity. Uh, we um, uh, part of the CARES Act was an accelerated payments uh, schedule from uh, our opportunity from from the Medicare program. So we uh, we were this is well publicized. We uh, ultimately got accelerated payments about um, close to a billion dollars from them. So we just we didn't need it. We just put it in the bank uh, for extra cash reserves, and um, and we've uh, that's worked pretty well for us we're in the process of paying that back now um, because we don't, uh, we don't need it anymore. But, um, you know, all of that is, uh, you know, we, we continue to, so one of the, one of the things I would, uh, I would tell you is that we've, we've grown as a financial organization, as a finance function within an organization uh, during this pandemic is that we've refreshed our um, fascination with cash. And um, uh, when cash becomes really important to you, you, you refocus your, a lot of your activities and a lot of your reporting on what's the cash balance and what's the cash drain and what's the cash burn. And all of that has become familiar within our lexicon here uh, at Mayo Clinic. We've got a, a couple of public trustees uh, who are, uh, who are uh, quite financially astute, um, uh, in, including uh, some of them in the turnaround business. So they, they're quite, quite attuned to this, and they, they were great advisors and great council uh, as we're going through this.
1: I really love that phrase, um, refresh, refresh our fascination with cash centers. That's, uh, that's really brilliant. I really like that. Um, going to a question from the audience here. Um is your accounting department or your finance team under greater or lesser scrutiny um, on day-to-day operations, since the heart of your operation is healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say absolutely, in fact, I've,
3: I've shared this with some uh, in the, in the trade press is that one of the things uh, when, when we're, um, Mayo Clinic's been on a, been on a a very positive run from a financial performance perspective and in many other dimensions, but just let's think of the financial performance perspective. We've got a a top line CAGR of, you know, 6% plus uh, for the last decade. Um, Our profits are, we've had two years in a row of, of record profits. And we're non-profit, but we invest, we're, we act as a, as a foundation, we pull it right back into research or education. So, um, so profitability is good. Um, uh, and where was I going with that? I was going someplace with it. Uh, what would <laughs> you remind me of
1: the question, Dylan? The- uh, yes. Um, is your accounting department or finance sure. under greater or lesser scrutiny? That's what it was.
3: So okay, and so um, by and large, every month at, at Mayo Clinic is a good, is a, a pretty solid month. We're operating near capacity, and so that distinction, precision between months of accounting and matching revenue expense, had, you know, w- was not as precise as you you would you might want it to be. And that became quite apparent when we came to a screeching halt on March 23rd when the clinic closed. And we had about five or six weeks of expense load that was about the same as it was before we closed, which of course doesn't make any sense. Um, and it was all the latency and in invoicing and expense recognition. Um, and uh, and that's that's because we had, we had allowed precision, we had sacrificed precision for Expediency and and we using a lot of estimates one twelfth of annual amount those sorts of things so it wasn't very, it wasn't to a level of scientific precision that you'd think an organization run by scientists and physicians would would aspire to and so we're in the process of re reengineering some of that the same is true on the way back up as in in May and June uh, we I'm I'm fully uh, confident that we will see some expense. Uh, latency uh, as we move uh, move into the future months, because guess what? We haven't changed the processes yet. We're in the process of, of making the changes, but the the same thing that was true on the way down is true on the way up, and it was a latency and recognition of expense. Um, so that's probably the biggest, uh, biggest aha to us. The other, the other, um, Work stream that has been uh, a burden for our finance and accounting team is uh, this the rigor that we started in mid April around weekly reforecasts of what's happening for the next three months and through the end of the year um, that was brand new work we hadn't we hadn't had to do that before. But as the conditions and the trajectory of the pandemic changed from week to week, those became pretty important data points and pretty important navigation tools for the organization. We've since backed off to a monthly refresh of that because this, the pandemic's trajectory is. A little more predictable and a little more stable, um, but that that projection of rev, expense, cash flow, and balance sheet strength all all became very 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 uh, significant tools for us. And that was a brand new book of business. And, and I, I, there was more than one discussion of, do we have? Can we stop doing this now? Is this is this work that we have to continue doing? And the answer is, as of today, still yes. And, and I, I think we will continue doing it in the future because it's a great. Um, uh, it's a great tool to keep, uh, uh,
1: to keep uh, uh, situationally aware of what's going on. It's a really tremendous insight, thank you. Um, while you've expanded all that you've uh, been able to do to provide more information uh, at a quicker cadence, um, have you discovered any talent gaps within your finance team during this time? And what what specifically are the talents that you think have become most important during this crisis?
3: You know, uh, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure this pandemic has sort of is sort of elevated or led to the discovery of, of these talent gaps. I think they were, we, we're they were known before, uh, but it's but it's really apparent when you're when you're uh, leading a finance function inside a, a science, research, education, clinical enterprise that thrives on on precision and scientific rigor, uh, and is populated um, in part with. Uh, data scientists and um, the purveyors of artificial intelligence. And the tools, and I will say this, so the, the direct comparison between the tools we use to say uh, estimate revenue on a monthly basis, what's the accrual for revenue that, that we haven't uh, you know, realized in cash, um, the level of precision, the level of modeling, the level of predictive capabilities that we put into that exercise is compared to the, just what the, the precision and the data um, mining that we did to and continue to do on the COVID pandemic were, were there's no comparison. The, the, the data science and the data rigor around the COVID projections um, was much more significant and much more advanced and much more mature than anything we do on a month-to-month basis to estimate revenue. Say, so clearly we've, we're going to have to, in the finance world, really adapt and adopt some of that. Some or a lot of the data science that that is happening in the scientific and research uh, worlds and apply it to our finance, our ordinary um, month-to-month, week-to-week, day-to-day challenges of. What, what's, what's happening with volume, what's happening with, with revenue, what are sales doing, those sorts of things, uh, and, and switching our viewpoint from a historical perspective to a predictive one, and that's looking forward. So I'll, I think those are the, that's probably the key, the key um, missing skill set that, that um, is, has become quite even more apparent than it was before during the pandemic.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Really great insight. Michelle, it's time for our third polling question.
2: Has your use of scenario planning increased since the outbreak of COVID-19 in the United States? Please be sure to make your selections and press submit once you have made your selection. Don't forget to submit any questions to the Q&A box as we will have some time to go through any of your questions. I'm gonna give you 10 more seconds left to respond and we will move to the results. And here are our results:
1: eighty percent increase. That's pretty significant, um, in my opinion. Dennis, um, you've already talked about how uh, your use of you know scenario planning. Um, increased you know during especially those really dark times during the beginning of the pandemic in the u.s um over the last month or so and moving forward what role is scenario planning playing for you what does it look like what are the biggest things you're considering
3: well, uh, so we're we're driving our scenario planning directly off of the, the COVID pandemic uh, projections. We're we the modeling we're currently doing gives us about eight weeks of pretty high confidence levels uh, uh, in terms of, uh, and we're using cell phone data. We're using CDC guidelines. We're using um, you know pa- uh, infection rates and and um, hospitalization rates from across the from across the world to infuse this. That's what I mean by the rigor and the scientific rigor around this data mining and data analysis and and data science. Uh, And so we're using that as the foundation for all of our financial models. And so, um, you know, in a week, next week, um, I'll have um, a refreshed uh, financial projection Mayo Clinic has significant sites in the Midwest, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and two sites in the southern uh, United States, Arizona and Florida. And as you, as you are probably aware, wildly different trajectories of the pandemic in all three of those uh, areas. And so we're going to infuse the financial planning for all three of those uh, geographies in different ways based on the modeling. And so, and what does that tell us? It tells us we're modeling not only the overall pandemic, but we're modeling what's the use of, uh, of equipment and supplies and staff. How many ICU beds are we going to have uh, uh, utilized by COVID patients? And what does that mean to the rest of our business? Do we have to decant some of that or delay some of that or defer some of that? Do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough uh, masks and gloves and gowns to to, um, uh, to supply? Do we have test, enough testing equipment and testing capacity to meet that those needs? All of that's being infused into, uh, into that forward-looking projection. And, and candidly, this is, this is really, if there's a silver lining around a, a pandemic such as this, um, it's really, it focuses our attention as a finance Profession, I think, on how do we get really good at, at providing these kinds of predictive insights to the organization that we work with and for? Um, and we're, we've, we are clearly growing in that respect. We're growing very fast because we've had to and we had to react to the, to an un, unexpected pandemic, but um, we are, uh, we are getting much, uh, much better, much faster than we ever would have um, just by, um, um, by, by modeling, being able to model the uh, the, the future, it, you know the other thing I would suggest is that, um, and you you probably are seeing this across the board. And I, I I don't know if we can poll the audience, but uh, we uh, one of our one of our coping strategies to coexist with COVID is that we completely, or at least to the extent we could, and early on it was almost completely, we decompressed our clinical areas of anybody that didn't have to. Touch or be with a patient, so all of our administrative staff went home. All of our anybody that didn't that didn't have to be hands on with patients went home. And so a, a large part of our workforce is still working from home. Will likely work from home for the long term. Um, and obviously that brings a whole new set of of skills and and um, you know abilities of how do you and we're going to have to adjust to that. Obviously uh, managing performance and engagement and culture. Uh, uh, via video and virtual means is, is, um, is something that you know, I'm certainly not gifted in or I'm not trained in, I'm not experienced in. It's something we're all going to have to learn together as both receiver and giver of of um, remote uh, presence uh, technology, so um, I think that's a that's uh, another I should have mentioned, maybe perhaps mentioned that as part of the skill set that we're maybe missing. I w- I'll also just acknowledge from a personal perspective, it's it's in some ways you know the tale of two cities. Is I you know we can't travel, can't I don't don't get on an airplane. We're still under a travel moratorium here at Mayo Clinic, um, but with virtual presence technology such as this, it's easy to work from anywhere, and so I've spent much more time at my um, vacation home in Minnesota this year than I than I have uh, most, most years. It's easy to work there.
1: Uh, another question from the audience, um, kind of related to what you're talking about with remote work. Um, what specific challenges has remote work presented uh, for your team, and are you expecting to have more remote working as things recover and as we kind of continue to coexist with uh, COVID nineteen?
3: Yeah, great question. Maybe, maybe the biggest question for employers uh, in the current state in the next few months. So um, we uh, we're, we're following in general a rule that. Uh, we'd like to maintain the work from home status uh, unless it's impossible to do so. And so, and there's obviously it's not it's not a it's not a binary choice. There's you know you could completely work from home, and some some parts of our workforce have done been doing that for years and doing it very successfully. There are some that you know really have to be present. Uh, leadership uh, and certainly in our business, patient facing or customer facing um, uh, needs to be needs to be on site or at least be. Uh, present and visible to customers. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch in the middle that, that maybe a little bit of both, some hoteling and whatever else. Uh, there's a whole host of challenges, uh, not, and not all of them hard, but some of them are. It's, you know, whose who's equipment are you going to be working on at home? Can you work on your own desktop and just VPN in? Do we, do we give you a, a desktop at home do we need to give you a laptop so you can carry it back and forth who's uh, whose internet service are we using are we, if we're using your home do we do we provide a stipend for that um, do we provide a desk chair what if you don't have dedicated office space what if your kids are home part-time what if you um, what if you both you and your spouse work for uh, in our case, Mayo Clinic, um, and yeah, there's only one place to work. Um, there's a whole host of things. You know, our, our workforce prior to COVID was not hired um, with a concept of I'm going to work from home most of the time, and so that, um, that so our workforce isn't necessarily organized to do that. In the future, we can hire for that, and it can be an expectation, but it's not today. So. And, and I, the, the looming challenge for us, and I, it, it actually is generating some of the most um, of the frequently asked questions from our workforce around working from home or working from anywhere, is that what happens this fall when our when schools don't fully reopen, don't uh, and and. Uh, children have to be educated at home. So then my, my summer continues into the fall and at least here in Minnesota, the weather's not as nice in the fall or the winter as it is in the summer. And so we can't, they can't be outside. So we're all cooped up in the house and I'm supposed to work from home and be productive. That's, that's a little, that's a challenge uh, for everybody. So we're, we're trying to, do, we're using some coping strategies or cope, coping, um, uh, uh approaches uh, to
1: help staff get through get through those or find solutions to those those challenges thanks Dennis um Michelle can you pull up our final polling question of the day
2: sure has your supply chain experienced disruptions due to COVID-19 please be sure to make your selections and press submit and don't forget to send any questions you have to the Q&A box. I'm going to give you about 15 seconds left to respond, and we'll move to the results. And here are our results.
1: Interesting, just under 70% have experienced supply chain disruptions due to COVID-19. Um, certainly something that we would expect. Um, Dennis, I I know that a, um, you mentioned that the supply chain was kind of the first indication that there would be problems um, and that this pandemic would uh, have the level of impact that it has. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how the Mayo Clinic has been impacted by supply chain issues? Oh, sure, um, we're <laughs> I, I'll, I'll paraphrase
3: uh, my the supply chain lead uh, that I work with here at Mayo Clinic. He, he went from uh, having a fairly resilient, highly reliable supply chain. Long, I mean, a lot of a lot of the starting points were in China, at manufacturing plants. Uh, but he went from you know from operating at a at a you know um, suit and tie business level to you know essentially the spot market, trying to find N95 masks or surgical gowns or gloves or face masks. Um, and there were, as you said, there were many days when he felt like he had to go home and take a shower because he felt like he was, you know, on a street corner making drug deals, trying to find, you know, argue or negotiate for a price on, you know, a box or a train load or a, a, a train car full of, you know, N95 masks or whatever. And there were a lot of, there were just there were a lot of uh, profit takers and and uh, let's just say scammers in this space. And I and I know. Um, and most of them demanded some sort of a, a you know money upfront or at least a you know a, a, a deposit in escrow or something. And most of them weren't able to deliver. And so you know we didn't lose any money over this, but it was a lot of work and a lot of uh, a lot of dealing with people that we you know, the kinds of uh, business partners we don't usually deal with. So I, that, that's one challenge. I, you know, I think the the other is um, you know supply chain. Really has uh, it, it prided itself and has been successful, very successful at at high reliability. They, they never want to be the no reason a surgery can't be done or a patient uh, suffers a demise or some sort of a safety incident. That never can happen. And what 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 this made uh, you know challenge them is that all of a sudden they became uh, in some in some ways the constraint. And um, and so we had to we had to craft. Uh, volumes and and capacity to meet the um, to meet the availability of PP, uh, personal protective equipment. So um, that that was a that was a difference for them. You know, looking forward, and this is not insightful at all because everybody's thinking the same thing. Is that we do? You know, there is an advantage to shortening our supply chain, our supply lines. Um, it, we still these are a lot of these supplies are commodities, and so it really is. And you and you buy hundreds of thousands of them, if not millions, on an annual basis, and so a penny per per uh, on each one matters. And so China is always going to likely have an advantage on that, or someplace else will have an advantage on that, so we've got to figure out a way to to repatriate them. And so at least the supply chain, supply lines are closer, or shorter. Uh, and maybe maybe someplace in North America can figure out we can figure out a way to do that or we band together and aggregate demand and figure out a way to, to produce just as much as we need and no more so there's no waste on that. We'll figure that out. But that's that's the that's
1: the challenge going forward. Really excellent insight. Uh, Dennis, we've had gotten a couple of questions about uh, KPIs. Um, Has your team begun tracking any new KPIs um, during this crisis, or have any KPIs that you've previously been tracking, have they become more important?
3: Well, as I, I referred to it before, the, the cash, cash balance and cash burn has become more important. So that, that's, but we've always tracked that. We just haven't paid as much attention to it. There, it hasn't been as high on our list of KPIs as it is today. Um, with with uh, the restoration of, 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 of our clinical practice volumes, that, that has receded even a little bit. Um, you know, we're tracking things like uh, the geo, uh, geo origins of where our patients are coming from. Um, we know that international, uh, it's very difficult for people to travel interna- internationally to get to any of our sites. And so that, that, uh, that stream of patients is, is, pretty, pretty modest at this point. Uh, we're tracking, uh, you know, sort of a surrogate, what's, um, what's happening in, um, uh, in, in domestic travel to, uh, to uh, in terms of what can we think, what, what, uh, airline capacity, those sorts of things. So it gives us some insight into what the opportunities for downstream future volume are. We're, um, you know, we're tracking, um, uh, you know, volumes. Uh, no new, no, no new statistics, no new KPIs, but we are tracking um, the volume numbers with, with probably greater clarity and greater interest at this point.
1: That's really great, thank you, Dennis. Um, another question from the audience. I really like this one, um, Dennis. From your perspective, and I know that you know, uh, research studies require a tremendous amounts of uh, planning. Um, But one that has risen to prominence recently is the Mayo Convalescent Plasma Research Study. Uh, Can you give us your perspective on what it was like um, having to rush to get that ready and also uh, how it's going? Well, uh, sure, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm,
3: I'm the CFO, not, not a scientist or not a physician, so I wasn't directly involved with it, but it was, you know, this is um, this is a, we, in, in Mayo Clinic, and I'm sure other organizations have other terms for it, but describing the same thing, it's, we call it discretionary effort. It's, um, it's the willingness of, of uh, our staff and our leadership to go the extra mile when conditions require it or conditions. Suggest that it's worth it. This is one of those cases, and so we had a a physician, or more more than one, that was quite interested in this, and and we had the capacity to do something about it. So um, the convalescent plasma, we we let it. And the other, the other um, um, part of Mayo uh, culture and slash just identity is that we're we're highly collaborative. We we are friendly to work with, and there's no. There's hopefully uh, for the uh, there's there are no there's no downside generally to working with Mayo Clinic because we're we we share and uh, and are easy to partner with so so that that is part of the process so we 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 uh, this individual this physician uh, pulled together a consortium of of fellow uh, academicians and researchers and uh, physicians and and Put together a team and pulled it pulled it together. It's um, uh, with the, the funding was quite helpful, uh, so we, we got a significant amount of external funding uh, to to run the clinical trial. Um, and early returns are, are pretty good. Clindoblastin plasma is um, is uh, it, it holds, holds some promise, a significant promise, I should say.
1: Thank you for that uh, interesting update on that and also um, hearing more about that. It was really interesting, Dennis, thank you. Um, another question from our audience, how is planning being done for 2021 right now? What, what assumptions are you making um, as you're doing this planning? You know, it's a great
3: question and highly timely. I just uh, met with our leadership team yesterday to sort of talk about the concept that we're, of how we're going to plan for 2020 or how I'd like to plan for 2021. And um, so this is where I have to give credit to the people at work, that I work with and work around me. So our, our leadership and our governance, uh, our board has, uh, you know, has been very supportive of, of I think, and, and quite uh, um, uh, responsive to the to the moment, and by that, what I'm meaning is, we're as we're thinking about 2021 planning, we we yet you know more so than in perhaps any other year in my professional life. Um, I know a little. I know less about what next year will look like than I've ever ever uh, known. You know, a little more than five months before it starts. And so, our, our governance, governance, our board has given us. We we generally um, at our summer board meeting. Provide some sort of a, you know, a forecast of what, what the, what our target uh, assumptions are and you know, how we're going to build our budget, what, what, what framework we're going to build our budget on. And they've given us the latitude to not, not do that this summer. We'll do it this fall when we have a clearer line of sight. So they've given us that latitude. We're going to take that. I want to, I'll want maintain optionality on 2021 planning as long as I possibly can. We kind of run out of runway on that front about October because we've got to start opening up schedules for uh, positions and, and uh, start investing in programs and making sure the machinery is all, all up to speed uh, to meet the demand. So um, but I'll take the extra few months. So right now. Uh, our plan is to predict, is to to use scenarios to to uh, to create that optionality going into the fourth quarter of this year, um, and so we're tracking what one uh, one scenario. Maybe I'll call it our base scenario is um, a, a COVID nineteen vaccine manifests itself sometime in the fourth quarter, and the indications are that that may uh, that may likely happen. Um and it's highly effective. That plus our coping skills of coexisting with COVID nineteen allow us to have a fairly normal twenty twenty one. And in that case it'll look a lot like we planned twenty twenty to look. And so that's uh, so we're using the 2020 plan as a basis for that. Um, a second scenario is a, is a continuation of the COVID uh, 19 uh, pandemic impacts, um, and so we'll, we would likely um, well I know it's, it's modeled at a deficit a, a detraction from the base case, um, but that would be a continuation of international travel restrictions. Um, maybe uh, flare-ups periodically in, in relevant markets for us. Um, and so we're using at least those two scenarios. We'll obviously model some other dire scenarios, return of elective case uh, bans and those sorts of things, uh, just to give us a total context for what the risks are in next year's planning. But um, that's how we're approaching it. So two, two things, one is we're deferring the uh, finalization of our 2021 plan as long as we can, uh, and we're using scenarios to sort of plan, keep maintain optionality about what does what does that future look like. Obviously, there's flow through uh, from an oper you know, you plan the operational uh, budget, and then there's flow through from cash flow with uh, cash flow produced and investments that you can make for that. And obviously, that's all part
1: of the same uh, same process. Coming into the tail end of this uh, discussion, um, Dennis, what is your outlook for the healthcare industry? Um, and then maybe a little more particularly as it relates to things like telemedicine, e visits, telehealth, personal medical devices, remote monitoring, hospital at home. Um, what are your thoughts on this and the industry as a whole? That's well, a great. Uh, it's you know, it's a great point.
3: Um, I I should have even mentioned that. One of that was one of our uh, when the when the uh, practice closed in late March, um, we offered every patient that we had to call to cancel their uh, their appointments uh, a video or a, a some sort of a virtual visit, uh, and the uptake was tremendous. We we went from doing um, you know as many we went from doing almost nothing to doing as many in a day that as it would, uh, as it would have taken us a year to do before the crisis. So, you know, a 300 fold increase in, in what, um, in what we were seeing. So what, you know, it tells me is that if people are resilient and can, that they can, can deal with, um, they're, they can deal with significant hardship and, 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 um, uh, be nimble in how they, how they, um, how they react to it. Um uh, I, I do think that will, that uh, we've since seen that a trip back down to not quite the levels before. Uh, but I think, and in talking to peers across the healthcare industry, I, uh, there's clearly an, been an uptake in, in uh, virtual visits. And uh, you know, the, the my experience with virtual visits is that once you you know to get that first opportunity to use one is is generally a hard, heavy lift. But once you've experienced it, and with uh, advancing tools, it's a it's a terrific. Uh, it's actually a, uh, almost a preferable uh, way to, to uh, consult with your physician. As, as regards to the rest of the healthcare industry, I think you know we've seen uh, in a short-term basis a flight to quality. Um, we we think Mayo Clinic does offer a, a brand and a, that that is that um, is reliable and uh, has an affinity, or people have an affinity for, in, in times of crisis. Um, I, I do think this work from home um, thing is going to change the industry a fair amount. I, I do. There's. Um, any any public health crisis um, challenges the entire industry, and there are weaker parts of the industry, rural health being one, uh, that are probably um, uh, susceptible to the to the um, uh, to the financial impacts here, and and may may not may suffer uh, more so. So I'm, I'm a little that, that's one one place to watch. Um, uh, maybe I'll stop there. I'm just looking at the clock. I, I, I don't want to uh, filibuster my time until the end of the hour.
1: Uh, thank you. I'm um, really interesting to hear about uh, those changes and how it's happened. Um, you mentioned a couple of things that would uh, kind of be big changes after this. What are some other things that you expect to kind of fundamentally shift or change uh, in the wake of this crisis for the Mayo Clinic? Well, I think, um, and not just for the Mayo Clinic, I, I,
3: I, I'm really wondering about, about air travel. Um, you know piling, uh, hundreds of humans in a silver tube, uh, and, and subjecting them to hours of close proximity. I, I, I wonder whether we'll be, uh, open to that over the long term. I, you know, I, and international travel, I will, will the world return to normal, uh, after a vaccine or after this pandemic passes or will, will our surveillance and, and, uh, maybe, maybe even to the point of distrust of, of populations from elsewhere, um, uh, you know, sustain itself and will, will, order, will borders reopen and free the free flow of people uh, across them uh, resume. Um, I do think, um, uh, li- likewise, movie theaters, I think retail will be changed, um, you know, uh, there's if um, if everybody's working from home, uh, I, I had a colleague that uh, mentioned, who was, was an executive who was working from home. Um, it was in a, in, a, in a fit of honesty one, during one uh, phone call or one Zoom meeting uh, re- reminded us that she, you know, she had a new pair of heels that she wanted to wear to the office and she hadn't been able to since the advent of work from home. And, uh, and by the way, the, and others have had you know, a new suit that they couldn't wear. And what do I do with all the suits in my closet if I never have to come to work anymore? It's an interesting discussion and an interesting, and I, and I don't know what that means for retail, but I suspect it's something that's going to stay.